Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Certainty Talks. On this show, we talk about certainty, a topic that feels more important today than ever before, but all in all, always an important topic. Today, we have my good friend and business partner in the Whale Club, Paul Sparks, who are not only a very successful real estate investor, but also a certified certainty advisor. Now, we do this show because a wise man once asked a question. You look at the last three years of your business by months and turn all your negative months into zeros, what would happen to your bottom line? And that wise man is Dan Nicholson. And now we are here to achieve financial certainty by rigging the game in your favor. Now, I'm also on a mission to create 100 millionaires. The podcast alone is enough to help you become a millionaire in the next five to seven years. If you'll take consistent action, you will become one. And if you get value out of the show, please share this episode right now. That way we can all grow together. Now, some of the things we talk about today are going to uh, sound a little confusing. All I ask is keep an open mind, keep an open loop. Don't try to close the loop so fast. Uh, you might miss some of the, uh, the things that we're trying to talk about. Talk about, talk about, talk about, talk about, talk about. Um, and uh, we're going to start off, as usual, with a six-word update. Um, well, actually, before we do that, Paul, how about you introduce our special guest? Well, welcome, Dan. Uh, it's, it's awesome to have you back. Uh, Dan was on our, our first show, maybe even our second show, but it's good to have him back. Um, I was sort of making a list here. Uh, you asked me to introduce Dan. Here's how I would, I would describe Dan. He is an accountant extraordinaire. So Dan runs one of the top mid-sized accounting firms uh, in the nation, which means he works with uh, business owners like ourselves. He is an entrepreneur, has launched multiple successful businesses in multiple different domains. He's the creator of the Certainty Operating System, which is responsible for this show and the content that we're talking about. Um, he has also won the award for best hair in Seattle for the last 10 years <laughs> plus. So he doesn't, he doesn't advertise that. He is the chief whale officer as part of the whale club. So he has, he's responsible for staying up to date on all the, the latest whale facts out there. Right. So if you got any questions about whales, talk to Dan. Uh, and then, most recently, he is the author of a fantastic book called Rigging the Game, which has, you know, in a week's time, jumped up to number one on 10 plus categories on Amazon, heading heading towards, you know, some bestseller lists. So welcome, Dan. We're extremely excited to have you today. Yeah, super excited to be here. And uh, apologies in advance for a scratchy throat, but I will, uh, I'll do my best to enunciate. Awesome. And uh, I think uh, the title, my favorite title, I've seen of Dan uh, is from the Wolf Den. I believe it's the Wolf Den, which says uh, Wealth Wizard. So uh, let's uh, let's start off with uh, the six word update. So I got my my own um, and um, I wrote down rigging the game fixed my focus. That's good. I wrote down something, uh, heard some conversations uh, from Nick and Dan recently about integrity. And so my six word update was, would you follow you into battle? Yeah. Question of leadership and integrity, right? Like you ask your team to follow you into battle. Would you follow yourself into battle? Um, it's a question I ask myself constantly as a, uh, as a way to kind of reflect on my leadership skills and um, yeah. Yeah. That's powerful. That's a great question. Great question to ask yourself. Do you have one, Dan? I do have one. And it came up from yesterday. You are always the cheat code. I like it. I like it. Especially it takes me back. Paul might not know about this, but Dan, you remember Nintendo Power? Oh, yeah. Right? 100%. So you got it. I mean, the first thing you do, right, when you get Nintendo Power, you go straight to the cheat code section. <laughs> right? Absolutely. So I think cheat codes, absolutely. I think that's, that's absolutely critical. So, uh, Paul, why don't you lead us off for uh, what we're going to talk about today? So... What we're going to talk about today is Dan's book, Rigging the Game. And I love that uh, your six word update, Dan, I can't re recall specifically the, the six words that you just said, but you know, it, you are the cheat code for your own life. And I, I take that at, as um, the second wealth commandment, which is preference versus binary. A lot of us don't realize that we have all the answers. The, the problem is we're, we get caught trying to play other people's games we get caught trying to ask people, well, what should I do? How should I do this? Um, so we're going to talk about that today. And I'd like to, uh, to turn it over to Dan first to just tell us a little bit about the book. Tell us a little bit about maybe like why you decided to write this book, Dan. 
Well, first off, you nailed it with your, your comment about uh, my six word update being connected back to commandment number two, which is around uh, understanding the difference between preference-based decisions and binary decisions, those decisions that have an actual right and wrong. And turns out almost every question you're probably asking yourself, at least as it relates to your business, is a preference. It depends on what you want. <clears throat> now, uh, I got really interested in this concept of rigging the game uh, several years back as I frankly kept failing in new business ventures. And on paper, my resume, business degree, you know, all the things that you listed off, like, why do I keep failing in these new ventures? Uh, I'm doing all the research. Uh, I think I'm a reasonably smart guy. Like, why is something that I did uh, in one business not carrying forward? I started to notice these patterns in, in particular understanding systems. And this quote that I love that says, every system is per perfectly designed to get the results it gets. And so if you don't like the results it's getting, you could choose to just be a victim and feel sorry for yourself, or you could endeavor to try to change the system or change your behavior within that system. And so as I started to think about that, you see all these, uh, how that plays out, how it plays out in taxes. You wanna pay less in taxes, gotta modify your behavior to conform to the benefits within the tax code. That's what the wealthy and the sophisticated business owners are doing. You wanna go, uh, and have a top ranked podcast like Steve and Paul, like understand the way the ranking systems work and uh, modify your behavior to get the outcome that you want. You wanna uh, go number one in a bunch of different categories in Amazon, figure out how that system works, modify your behavior to, to, to uh, capitalize on that. And you sort of can go on and on and on into all these different domains and the, the uh, the domains are different, but the process is, and the principles at least remain the same. And that's really what my sort of, what my book is about with the certainty operating system is about, is about getting what you want on your terms without compromise. Um, I saw you talking about this the other day, um, mm -hmm. the title rigging the game. Now rigging the game, I think has an in, uh, inherently a negative connotation. Uh -huh. So how did you come up with that title? Yeah, so uh, this is just a probably another example of something I talk a lot about about playing playing your game. So as as Paul mentioned in the beginning, the very first thing he said is Dan has an accounting firm, and if you don't know me right away, you're like, cool. So they're having a super boring guest on today, like an accountant. Like, wh why am I t tuning into this? And uh, I only got an accounting degree because I thought it'd be the best skill set to be an entrepreneur. I didn't realize that I would never get that stank off me for the rest of my <laughs> life. And so, <laughs> uh, so I mentioned that because not only did I get an accounting degree, but then I doubled down and I ended up doing this fellowship where I helped write an accounting standard. And trust me, I won't get into those details, but I was 22 at the time and I was single and I was living in, Norwalk, Connecticut, Fairfield County. I think the average age has got to be like 55. And it's the second richest county in the US. So being single already 22, like there's not a lot of prospects. And then you go out say a bar as people used to do, you know, because 20 years ago when I was 22, uh, that's depressing to say, but you know, we didn't have all the apps and everything uh, like now. Um, and you go out and you meet somebody you know, we have like a nice conversation, you know, start off and they're like, so what do you do? Like, oh, I write accounting standards. <laughs> and it's like, you could hear glass break. Like every, everyone has dropped like their cocktail in the bar. They're screeching sound like, oh, so you are the most boring person in this entire bar. You win. <laughs> Moving on, you win. And this competition is the most boring person. Uh, and so that was this inflection point where I realized I got to take a different approach. I can't just lead with, I'm an accounting person. Uh, I got to lead with something either kind of hyperbolic or something super generic that it's almost comical. Like who even says that? <clears throat> so I started saying, I'm a business person. 
like, hi, yeah, what's up? What's going on? Oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm a business person. Like, business person? Like, what does that even mean? And then it was like an entry point into a conversation. And, and then later when I started an accounting firm and I would go to these networking events, it was like the same thing over again where you'd meet someone, oh, what do you do? I run an accounting firm. Oh, got it. Moving on. Like you're the most. And so I started saying I'm a non-conventional accountant, or I would say I'm a business person. In both instances are like, oh, okay, what is a non, I know what an accountant is, but how could you, accountants are conventional. That's accounting is conventions. How could you be non-conventional? That's like contradictory. Like, okay, well, let me tell you about what I do. So that's a long kind of uh, narrative into rigging the game is like something I want to do, but I don't know if I'm allowed to. Mm-hmm. So what do you mean? And it's an entry point into a conversation where now I can provide distinction. Yeah. And I like, you know, if you look at entrepreneurism, I think most entrepreneurs, not all, but I think most um, are, are maybe just a little less compliant. You know, they, they really enjoy the gray areas. And so something I've always prided myself in is knowing as much all the rules to the best of my abilities so that I can break them the right way, you know, <laughs> bend them this way, yeah. bend them that way, right. To navigate it, to, to maximize. And it sounds like. That's kind of what we're talking about. Once you understand the system, the, the rules, then you can modify your behavior based on within the construct of those rules to get the outcome that you actually want. Yeah. Um, and we all know that intuitively that the really wealthy are doing that already. Oh, they're doing it at at the best levels. Um, one thing, uh, you know, Paul talked talked about earlier is this goes back to, was it wealth commandment number two, playing your game. So one of the things I really enjoyed hearing you guys talk about before was like identifying the way you like to play based off your favorite sport or hobby. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So the concept of player game is something I learned from my mentor, Randy Massengale, Randy prolific career, senior advisor to people like Bill Gates, people like the founder of InfoSpace, so on and so forth. <clears throat> and fortunate enough to uh, call him a mentor as well. And in my very first uh, meeting with him, he asked me all these personal questions, and in particular, a lot of questions about basketball, which is my favorite sport growing up. And uh, like half the meeting, we we're talking about basketball. And uh, I got, to, we get to the end and they're like, oh, okay. Did we really accomplish much other than we kind of bonded over basketball? He was a college basketball player. His son was a college basketball player. Like, okay, we kind of bonded over this. And then he proceeded to basically tell me everything about uh, my style in business. And it was spot on in the most sort of revealing 10 to 15 minute conversation that I've ever had. Someone was able to kind of pinpoint me so, so precisely in such a short period of time and then help me kind of unlock ways that I was misstepping in business because I was playing someone else's game. I wasn't leaning into my own <clears throat> strengths. I was more spending time trying to address my weaknesses. So I have to credit Randy with really teaching me this concept of playing your game. And really it, it starts with this idea that what is going to make you, uh, and this is, this is sort of a little bit hyperbolic, but how can we expect to do something extraordinary if we're going to conform to the average? So how can we expect to do something extraordinary if we're going to conform to the average? It's a contradiction. It's almost like saying non-conventional accountant, but that's what we're doing in our lives is we say, I want to start a business because I want financial freedom. Uh, I want to design uh, uh, a life of, of my dreams. I want to be able to, I don't want a boss. And then what do we do? We go out and we seek consensus and we got all these masterminds and we just get to have someone like, just tell me what I, to do. Just give me, there's got to be the, uh, the best way. Just tell me the right way. Well, if you go and you jo- join this mastermind in your specific niche, and then you're implementing the strategy that everyone else is doing, you just conform to the average. 
how are you possibly then going to do something extraordinary? Actually, you just designed a system that's almost going to prevent you from doing something extraordinary. And so that's why we have to play our game, lean into our strengths, our natural tendencies, because that's what's going to carry us to that extraordinary path. And when you look at the data, the people who are doing something extraordinary now, they were just called weirdos when they were kids, and now they're called eccentric billionaires. Yeah. Um, so taking this application, uh, you know, it's all three of us have a passion for basketball. So in your conversation with Randy, what did we, un what did you guys uncover as your style of basketball? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. And in my book, I break down, if you want to figure out playing your game, the questions and the exercises to go through so that you can uh, take your favorite sport or hobby. It doesn't have to be a, a sport because some people, uh, hey, well, what do I do if I, I didn't like basketball or I didn't play a sport? Well, you probably had a hobby. And when you're doing that hobby, it was the free, maybe perhaps the freest expression of who you were, um, you know, ignoring overbearing parents and <laughs> telling you <laughs> you have to do things a certain way. Right. Um, so uh, if you want to go through the exercises in my book, that said, uh, so uh, I'm six foot two. And uh, so growing up, I was usually one of the taller kids, although in terms of, you know, professional or collegiate sports six foot two is you know, like point guard, but growing up, you're more like, Hey, put the, the tall kid under the hoop. And also I I'm, I'm pretty good at doing things in like a straight line, but I'm not very great in, uh, you know, I'm not the most athletically gifted person. So naturally I was the kid under the hoop forward center, uh, in organized sports. But as I, if I'm playing, in like pickup basketball, the way that I actually want to play, it's more like shooting guard. I want the ball in my hands. I'm going to, you know, take the, I'm going to take the last shot. But again, because I'm not the most athletically gifted person, I've got to rely more on hustle, uh, you know, diving on the floor, chasing after ball, you know, do, kind of going all in uh, during the game. And so that turns out that that's, kind of my default tendency in business. I like to have the ball in my hands. Like I like to be the decision maker and uh, I'm willing to take some risks. I'm willing to take the lash out. I'm willing to take the scrutiny that comes along with it, right? If you got the ball in your hands and you're taking the majority of the shots or you're taking the final shot, you lose the game. You have to bear the weight of the scrutiny and the expectations. We talk about in, in CCA, the two tyrants of leadership, scrutiny and expectations in that role of shooting guard, you have to be willing to take, take that, the scrutiny and expectations. Um, and I tend to put in maximum effort. So those are my tendencies. Now those are my greatest strengths. They can also uh, be my greatest weakness. So sometimes I'm taking too many shots. Sometimes I'm putting in too much effort, too much hustle, and you got to pass the, you know, pass the ball to, if you watch the last dance, sometimes if you're, got to pass the ball to Steve Kerr in the corner to hit the three to win the game. Like you don't always need to take that, that shot. Yeah. And so knowing that uh, it's a way to calibrate and go, okay, you know what? I've been too passive for a while. That's why I'm feeling complacent in my business. Unhappy. Uh, we're not firing in all cylinders. Uh, I've shied away from scrutiny and expectations. Okay. I need to put myself back in the role that I'm the most comfortable with. I see. Uh, um... And be aware of taking it too far. I Go see ahead. Paul so, nodding as you're going through your basketball example. So I think Paul yeah. probably has some similarities. So Paul, sure. what's your basketball style? Paul and I are very similar. Yes. Well, this makes me think of, because that was, that was me, you know, I was the, the captain of my varsity basketball team and it's like, give me the ball. I'm going to take the last shot. Um, and that's, that's how I run my business as well. Another, you know, so what I really took out of that was this, Oh my gosh, I'm still that same kid. And that's where I'm most comfortable, right? Is, is, is taking uh, that shot, putting the team, uh, the team's fate like on your shoulders. Um, I also think of something that, you know, my dad used to tell me as a kid about, you know, the shooter's mentality, right? If you shoot and you miss, what do shooters do? They keep shooting, right? Keep shooting. And so what I really got out of that whole 
exercises, if you can align the way you played sports or hobbies as a kid with the way you play business, because that's, that's, that's your natural tendency, right? You're going to have a lot more, um, a better time playing your game and not getting forced to play someone else's game. I wouldn't do well in a business where I don't take the last shot. That's just not my style. Um, so really understanding how you play those games is, is really helpful as you're looking around and saying, am I playing my, am I playing my game in business or am I playing somebody else's game? You know, um, as we're talking through this, I, I realize now finally why I was so unfulfilled at Intel. And it's because I didn't get to take risks. I didn't get to take the last shot. So like I am not athletically gifted and I'm not very tall. So for me, I worked on my jump shot a lot because that's what, uh, that's the one thing I can do that work ethic fixes, right? I can't jump that much higher. I can't get any faster, but I can have a good jump shot. So on a basketball court, I will run past or through or around every single screen. I will not stop on defense and I will box out on every single possession, right? And I want the last shot. And it's funny to see how that translates to business, right? I will outwork you as a, as, as a business owner, right? I, am, I will outwork you. I will follow processes. I will follow a process that I know has been proven, which is the jump shot, right? My jump shot is going to be fundamentally sound. And everything I'm, I'm going to do is going to be fundamentally sound because it's going to be process oriented. And then, yeah, like this morning, you know, I missed the game winner, but I took it. Right? I took the last shot because and I've, I've always wanted the last shot, even though I'm not going to be the best player. I'm very confident I'm going to be the best shooter. And I want that last shot. I love the uh, I love the conversation we're having right now and just how revealing this is. And it probably resonates with the people who are watching. I need to hire these other roles to compliment me and not have my next hire be another shooting guard because then we're going to be potentially uh, either conflicting with each other or there's just redundancy and we haven't filled out our team properly. And so well, you can use a point in that. I mean, Steve, what, what do a lot of people who come into the real estate investing space, oftentimes we're the best salesperson, right? We, we start this business and we know that our business is a sales and marketing business, at least on the wholesaling side, right? That's yep. what it is. Um, and so we are this excellent shooting guard. We know how to come in and knock down shots. We can create space from the defense and score. That's what we've, that's what we're really good at. But then what happens is six months, a year in, a year and a half in, whatever, we go out and we hire another acquisitions manager and we're trying to hire another shooting guard. And it's like, well, <laughs> you're taking yourself out of the most important part, the value that you add to that team, which is scoring. What you really need is that point guard to get you the ball. You need that center to get in there and get that rebound for you. You know, you, you might need the coach that can help you, you know, work on your, your, your one-on-one -on -one ball handling moves, right? I'm getting jacked up. I'm about to have to go to the gym. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that's the, that's the mistake that I made is I came in and I was like, oh, I'll just, I'll just step into the coach role. And that's a huge mistake because that is not my natural tendency on the court. My, my tendency is give me the ball. I want the ball. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if you, if you're aligned, if that's the type of way that you play the game, recognize that by pulling you out of that position, you're not, you're no longer playing your game. Yeah. You're playing the opposite of your game and now you're trying to play point. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You got a higher point guard, which is, you know, for everyone in the wholesaling business and the flipping business is, is the lead manager. Right. Yeah. Uh, and you got to have the center to follow up, which is basically, you know, call everyone that you couldn't close. Right. And keep following up with them. Right. Go get those boards. That's right. <laughs> and, and what's so just to maybe state the obvious. You can do uh, the, the challenge with interviewing is that uh, people who interview well don't necessarily do good at their job. And vice versa, people who are really great at their job don't always yes. interview well. And so you can, yeah, I know, but it's just like shocking to, to hear this. Are you just learning so this now, Paul? Asking, 
no. Well, um, well, we're just asking these traditional behavioral questions and tell me about your greatest strength and your greatest weakness and what's your favorite cereal and what does that mean about you? And uh, if you were a, a color, what would you be and why? Like, cool, okay, we checked a bunch of boxes, downloaded some cool questions off the internet. People have practiced these questions. Have we really learned what their natural tendencies are? Probably not, because they're giving you the answer that they think that you need to hear to hire them for this job. When I start talking to someone about their favorite sport or hobby, just the way Randy did with me, I am not realizing in that moment that uh, Randy was learning a bunch about who I am and my natural tendencies. And so you can sort of go, okay, well, for this role, I need a point guard or I need somebody who was uh, their natural tendency in their favorite sport or hobby is to be a distributor. Or you know what? I need an independent contributor. How do they show up in their favorite sport or hobby? You can have this nice conversation, but you can glean a lot more than asking them traditional interview questions yeah one of the things i learned some time ago because i kept hiring poorly um yeah me too and uh what i learned was that the people that interview the best are generally uh, the worst candidates and now if someone interviews really well I, I start seeing flashing red lights uh and the reason why is because if they interview really well that just means they've had more practice interviewing than anybody else <laughs> and if they had more practice interviewing than anybody else then that <laughs> should be a concern Right. That needs to be a new principle, Dan. <laughs> I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll Another thing we do as well that. as entrepreneurs is we tend to hire people like ourselves, right? That's kind of what Paul was saying mm -hmm. earlier. Because we want to hang out with other shooting guards. And what happens when we hang out with other shooting guards? We got the, we got the bronze dream team. Right? We, got the, <laughs> we got the U.S. Olympic uh, team that got the bronze medal, right? Because we hired a bunch of shooting guards. We, got hire, we hired a bunch of scorers that are like us versus uh, people that compliment us. Mm-hmm. So it's so true. It's such a good observation. Yeah. Uh, what were some other uh, big takeaways for you, Paul, as far as rigging the game? Well, I want to ask Dan, I think one of the, the biggest takeaways that I've gotten from the certainty operating system and, and learning Dan is this concept of asymmetry. And, you know, we talk about barbells and we talk about solvable problems but I want to just like explain it in, a, in extremely simple terms and then let Dan sort of elaborate. The concept I got from Dan and what I feel uh, truly is the essence of how to rig the game. And we actually had a question come up about this. Well, how do we address risk? That's really what this is. It's about removing risk. That's what asymmetry means. So the concept that Dan taught me is if you, instead of focusing on the upside, all the good things that could happen, if we can just eliminate the downside, so we can take away the downside, and instead of focusing on the upside, we focus on how to reduce the amount of downside that we have, all we're left then with is upside. And so that concept alone is was like, I would say a little jarring for, for me as a shooting guard, because all I'm looking at is like, I you know, look at all this upside, look at all these opportunities I have to shoot, right? And, and instead I've sort of had to rewire my brain to say, how do we just eliminate the bad things that can happen? If we can do that, all we're left with is good things. That's the concept of asymmetry. That is the underpinnings of certainty and ultimately what I feel Dan was really trying to get across with rigging the game is manufacturing things in a way that we have so much upside because we've just focused more on eliminating the downside. What do you think about that, Dan? I think you did a really uh, awesome job of explaining it. And uh, yeah, you're hired. So I'll just, have you, I'll just have you do the interviews from now on for, uh, for me. There you uh, go. The, we have to go back to the way that we are wired as humans and, and not fight against these natural tendencies. So we are, I believe that every human is biased, inherently biased, and there's a ton of neuroscience to support this. We're, we're biased. Part of these biases is, is motivated by this whole thing, dopamine, and how dopamine is really the molecule of more. So we are wired to always go after more. 
And it makes sense. I think about the early stages as a, a human, we got to go out and gather, hunt and gather as much as possible. When there's an opportunity there, we got to take it because we don't know when we're going to see another uh, deer or saber tooth tiger. I guess we don't want to see saber tooth tiger. That's what we used last time, right, Steve? Woolly mammoth. Woolly mammoth, thank yeah. you. Yeah, we don't know when we're going to be able to capitalize on uh, taking down another woolly mammoth. So we got to capture it every time we see it. Right? And so we still have that biology of every anytime we see something we got to go after it and the consequence of that is that we don't think about all the bad things that can happen so if i'm a shooting guard what is the biggest risk the biggest risk is my whole team is shooting guards so i never get the freaking ball so i want the ball <laughs> i want to take the shots which means i got it instead of hiring people that i just like that are just like me the biggest risk is that i don't get the ball because i want to shoot it so we don't like to focus on those negative things uh, because then we also get labeled as, why do you always have to be so negative? Why can't you just be happy for me? You're such a negative Nancy. On and on and on, Debbie Downer. Um, and my, my perspective on it is, I'd rather eliminate all of that bad stuff now so that I never have to think about it again. I don't want to have to have these conversations every day for the rest of this business. Let me eliminate those now because then all I have is upside. So here's how this plays out practically. I'll use the book as an example. Okay. I, I want to write a book. Okay. Well, what is the, what are the biggest risks of writing a book? Well, nobody buys it. And if nobody buys it, nobody reads it. So if my attention is to use this book to grow my business or my positioning as a, as a thought leader and nobody buys my book. So therefore nobody reads my book and I didn't accomplish uh, my mission. And on average, a new author will spend 300 hours writing their first book. So I just spent 300 hours on something I could have spent uh, doing something else that would have had a higher return for my business life, et cetera. So those risks are fairly obvious. So what do I do about it? Well, how can I find out if people are going to be willing to buy the book? And I talk about this principle, take a bias, taking micro steps. So when I don't have any data, which almost always when we're doing something new, we have no data. Uh, speculation is not data. I'm sorry. A single data point is not a trend. Sorry to point those things out. We have to take a step, ideally the smallest step possible to get us some information. Would anybody be willing to write a read, uh, buy this book if I wrote it? Here's a couple bullet points. A bunch of people raise their hand. Okay. Well, people will raise their hand, but that doesn't mean that they will actually buy. We vote with our wallet. It's really hard to get people to take out their wallet. Selling a $15 or $16 book is arguably just as hard as selling a $2,500 product. The, the challenges are roughly the same. It's surprising given the price discrepancy there, but anyone has done any bit of marketing, you know that that is true. So get people on a list, then get them to check out. Okay, I got enough people who are willing to who raise their hand. I set a target in advance that I needed to hit. I hit that target. Now I'm going to collect their money. How many people do I need to collect money from to then say, okay, I'm going to write the book. And so it's just taking risk off the table. So in my case, I decided... Uh, a couple years ago, I'm going to write this book. I did a Facebook post in a small group and I decided that I needed a hundred people to raise their hand and uh, I would need 50 people to buy it. So I got a hundred people to raise their hand. I set up a checkout page uh, after I hit the hundred and uh, more than 50 people pre-ordered it. I had something like 120 pre-orders. Okay. Now I'm committed to it. All right, well, I want to get a publisher. How can you get a publisher? Well, typically you need an agent, a book proposal, all these other things. What's the least amount of effort, least amount of risk I can do to get a publisher? Well, there's a platform called Publishizer that's like a crowdsourcing thing for, for books. So I, I go on there and I decide, okay, I'm going to set the platform record for sales because I know that'll gain a bunch of attention. And so I took some micro steps to... Uh, make that happen. And uh, that's probably for another another time to kind of break all that down. 
lock-in. I think we sold something like 2,600 copies of the book. I got 10 publishing offers. I accepted one. I ended up changing publishers later. Long story long, uh, the book uh, is getting close to coming out. How do I get reviews? Because I need reviews to get onto uh, various Amazon lists, et cetera. Let's take some more micro steps, so on and so forth. So the process is the same along the way. What's the smallest step I can take to take a risk off the table? And then I advance to the next step. That's a- so Dan, if I can add something to that, what, what you're saying is that the bigger the step you take, the more risk and ultimately the bigger the downside. Yeah. Yeah. So we have this bias in it. I think we probably have a lot of real estate people on here. Mm-hmm. Can we both, can we all agree in this virtual room right now that you value the properties you own more than the properties you don't own? hundred percent. Why wouldn't you? Because right. we own it. I mean, of course we, we saw we own it. it. Why wouldn't we? I don't care about my neighbor's house. I mean, I don't want something bad to happen to it. Right. And I hope they maintain it because it helps my property value and they're nice humans. But at the end of the day, I'm more concerned about my own stuff. Right. Not to sound selfish, but that's just the truth. It's human. That is obvious with a house or a car or something significantly tangible. But actually, it's the same thing with our ideas. I value my own ideas more than I value your ideas. And vice versa. And so when I take a big step, toward some goal, I own that. I call it naming the puppy and I got a whole story on that anecdote about it, but I own that. The bigger the step, the more ownership, right? The, the $2 million house I value more than the $100,000 house. Okay, so the bigger the step I take, the more that I own it, the harder it is for me to change my mind later. And so that's why I try to take the smallest step possible so that I don't own the idea as much because I assume that I'm biased and I'm going to get locked in on something and my ego is going to take over and all those sort of things. And uh, I don't want to put myself in a position where I'm going to wreck myself later because I've seen myself do that <laughs> several times in the past <laughs> and yeah. I don't want to continue to do that. Well, I, I, this was really helpful because I'm actually having a book published very, very shortly as well. Um, is that going to awesome. be, is that Thank you. It's not going to be as interesting or as, as helpful here. It's really just a biography for my parents, but I had, you know, I had a commission and, and I'm going to get it published. Uh, I, I heard you say something here, right? You know, the more, the bigger the step, the more you're going to be committed to it, right? Or it's going to be harder to talk you out of it. And there was something you said recently that really resonated with me. I struggled with it, but it really resonated with me. And it was that I reserve the right to change my mind. And um, I had a hard conversation with someone uh, yesterday and, um, and they had made a commitment to me. And what I said to them was like, Hey, look, I know you made a commitment to me, but some things have changed since you made that commitment. So I learned something recently, right? A mentor of mine, Dan said, I reserve the right to change my mind. So look, I get that you made this commitment, but it's been a while. So if you want to change your mind, like I'm totally good. Don't, don't commit to this out of guilt. Can you elaborate on this? Yeah, I think most of us have this espoused value. And first off, I'm proud of you for having that conversation and uh, giving somebody else permission to reserve the right to change their mind. Yeah. So many of us, we have this espoused value where we say, I do what I say I'm going to do. And like, my, my, my word is, is, uh, is gold and I do what I say I'm going to do. And that's, that's admirable uh, on the surface at least, but let's pick extremes because the extremes usually illustrate the point, right? Uh, which is I say, Hey, let's meet at seven o'clock at this restaurant down the street for dinner. We get, uh, I get there early, restaurants on fire. I don't go into the building. <laughs> like, well, hold on, Dan, you said you do what you're saying you're going to do. Like, why aren't you in the building right now? Are we supposed to meet for, uh, <laughs> meet for, for dinner here? It says seven o'clock. Why are you standing outside or why'd you go home? It's like, well, the house, the, the restaurant's on fire. So what? 
right? Like new evidence has presented itself. It's not safe for me to go in here, right? I'm going to die. And it's obvious. Uh, and okay, well, how many business decisions has new data presented itself in it's now that opportunity is on fire. So it's the dumpster fire at this point rather than the restaurant fire. But we go, well, I do what I say I'm going to do. So I got to follow through on it. Well, you're going to knowingly walk into clear and apparent danger, clear and present danger. No, you, that's the, the right thing to do is to reserve the right to change your mind. And that's where we come back to this conversation about discipline. And discipline, we ask yourself the question, would you be a disciple of yourself? So self-discipline is, are you willing to be a disciple of yourself? And so I like to think about it as uh, someone following you around with a camera. There's a, a, a philosophy, I believe it's called ethical egoism. It's this sort of concept of if you were followed around with a camera, and then it had to be played back to your mom. Would you want her to watch it? Or you're on TV. And if the answer is no, then you're probably doing the wrong thing. And the same thing is, is here with uh, this whole other concept, discipline. If you're followed around and you watched it, would you want to follow that person who happens to be you? And if the answer is no, then you need to change your behavior. You're, in, you're not in alignment with your values. And so I would not want to follow somebody around who is unwilling to change their mind in the face of clear danger or in the face of something that's not going to serve them or their community or their constituents, friends, et cetera. To me, it's much more admirable to go, I made this commitment, but right now, uh, this is not gonna be beneficial to either one of us. So what are we gonna do about it? Because it's not appropriate for us to just keep going on because we said we we're gonna do it. That takes a lot of fortitude, and that's the kind of person that I want to be. That's the type of person I would be willing to follow that has the fortitude to go, you know what, I was wrong. This doesn't no longer make sense. Let's do something different. Now, that doesn't mean you leave the person high and dry. It's like, let's do something different, and how do I help you as well? Yeah, that's powerful. So... Uh, that's an ongoing gut check. I mean, there are times that I say, yeah, I'd be a, dis I'd be a disciple of myself. And there's times that I have to answer that question with, if I'm being honest with a no, and that's a gut check. And then I got to like reorient and reorient and get myself back on track. Yeah. I think the, the thing with the camera walking around, your mom watching it, I feel pretty good with almost all of it. I think she'd be surprised at how much I curse, but beyond that, um, <laughs> I feel yeah. pretty good with it. The other thing that I, I, I really, uh, really resonated with me from the book was the greatest risk you can take. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. Outside of, uh, outside of death, I believe that the greatest risk that you can take is not living the life that you want. And we've all seen the TV shows, the person on the deathbed, and they're looking back on their life and they're filled with regret. And that's really kind of what I'm talking about around this greatest risk in life is looking back and not living the life that you want. And if we accept that to be true, then we have to get clear on what it is that we want to live, what we want from our life. So we got to get clear on that. And then we need to start aligning our actions with our intentions. And therefore we're taking steps where we're actually getting closer to what we want, not necessarily assuming that more is the answer to everything. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those wealth commandments are so, you know, I feel them viscerally. It's, it was sort of like, I, I didn't quite understand how I made decisions before uh, learning all this. And I had to, you know, that was, that was tough. Cause you know, Steve, you and I are engineers. I mean, Dan's an accountant, like we have technical backgrounds in that we think that we're making, you know, good, logical, rational decisions. And, and really what I, what I look back was it's like, you're just behaving like, you know, the humans did back in the woolly mammoth days. Like you're just, you're just chasing things because it's more because your biology was wired that way. Um, and so Dan, you know, this book that you came out with, 
it's it is a blueprint it is an actual guide to make better decisions that's how i think of the certainty operating system you know i've got it written right here on my desk all of them right i carry this around in fact we need to get the the same little cards that dr jeff gave us mm. we got to get this printed on a card i already i love I already that. got sonia working on it um <laughs> Cause I'm like, I need this in my card to carry around at this point. I've got them all pretty that's much, awesome. memorized, but is that coming? No, I was just saying that's awesome. I, yeah, I, I should do that. And I'm excited to hear Sonia is working on it. And so you guys on this, on this call, when we started this podcast, because we have so much to talk about on this subject, because Dan has done such a great job just documenting his his way of, of thinking and approaching things like growth so you're alluding to you know uh the preponderance of data and we need to take micro steps and we we don't scale until we hit predefined targets all these different things that you're describing mm -hmm. these are all ways to remove risk it's all meant you know the frames the issue processors the growth principles the wealth commandments these are all things designed to help you rig the game for your life. And the biggest risk that we face in life is not living the life we want, not getting the things that we want out of life because we play other people's games, because we're chasing more, because we don't have a framework for making good decisions. I don't care how analytical you think you are. If you don't have an operating system and a framework to make decisions, your human biology is going to take over more often than not and what you're doing is you're creating more work for yourself. You're, you're creating more risk to getting what you want. You're reducing your optionality. And it was just, I can honestly say this, this operating system right here completely changed the way I approach business and investing and, and my personal life. So I just want to say thank you so much for, for creating this, this book. If you guys want to learn like direct from the source more about this, Go pick up this book. Yeah, how do they get this book, Dan? Well, first off, Paul, thank you for for everything you just said. And if you want to uh, check out the book, you can just go to riggingamazon.com, and that'll redirect you to the Amazon page, and you can kind of take it from there. So yeah, riggingamazon.com. And yeah, I really appreciate uh, everything that you just just shared. So yeah. Thank you for saying that. And just to add on to that, right? Like we're not saying you can't try to do big things that's not what we're saying at all right it's the fact that most people saying to do big things also tell you you need to go all in they also tell you you need that's to burn right. the boats right we're saying right. you can try to do big things you can go for it but here's how we mitigate risk along the way so once you start to realize uh, that those people who have done the truly extraordinary they can naturally see asymmetry to the upside and they naturally remove downside risk, right? Uh, Bill Gates starting Microsoft, how much asymmetry to the upside was there in com computing at that time? So much, I mean, we can see now that with the, uh, the science of hindsight, all the things Elon Musk has done, uh, all the things in crypto that are happening right now, you go on and on and on, and what you actually see is that uh, these so-called risk takers, they were systematically eliminating downside risk, eliminating the bad stuff, but they were also only uh, working on opportunities where there was a huge amount of upside, thousands, tens of thousands, millions uh, uh, upside relative to the, the downside, right? Most of us aren't playing in that space. We got a service-based business, right? We're, we're working hard. Those service-based businesses inherently are not 10X, 100X, 1000X businesses. So we're taking all this risk where the relative return just isn't there. So we've got to work harder to eliminate the downside risk really in everything that we do. It's a different way of thinking, Paul, or Steve, you kind of you know, teed me up on this whole burn the boats thing. So many of us have been told like, well, Dan, I'm supposed to go all in and burn the boats. Uh, if you go back and you study the history of burn the boats, 
it actually means to take the least amount of risk, not the most amount of risk. Bigger steps, bigger downside. Burn that boat, you just increased your downside. Yeah, so the, the, the backstory is in this battle in 1519 with Cortez, he burned the boats and forced his men to go into battle because if he went back home, he was told they would be uh, killed for treason. So he had only one option to go into battle, not to go home. And so burning the boats to force his men to go into battle, yeah, there were casualties, but that was actually the least risky option. Entrepreneurs take that anecdote and they use it to sell you a mastermind and get you to take on a bunch of debt because uh, you're supposed to go all in. But actually, you should take the least amount of risk relative to all options. Yeah. Burn the boats is backwards, just kind of like the way everyone's interpreted it is backwards, just kind of like, you know, the jack of all trades, the master of none, but still better than the master of one. Right. We, all, we, we, we always eliminate that last <laughs> part of the jack of all tra uh, trades. Uh, no. quote. So yeah, I just prefer to cherry pick the things that make me feel good and uh, <laughs> eat the rest out. Yeah. So, uh, wrapping up here, uh, uh, is there anything you want to, uh, wrap, um, uh, leave with the people that are watching right now, watching or listening? Yeah. What, what always comes to mind to me is if you're not going to take actions to get you closer to what you want, what are you doing? What's, what's the point? You're going to get scrutinized no matter what, right? You get scrutinized uh, for what you do and you get scrutinized for what you don't do. And so if I'm going to take daggers and get criticized, no matter what, I'm just going to play my game and I'm going to make sure that I'm systematically getting closer to what I want, because I don't want to be the person on my deathbed, looking back on my life with a bunch of regrets. Yeah. And I hope that everyone that's watching feels the same way. I don't want anybody to look back on their life and go and have all these what ifs um, because they weren't willing to endeavor to play their own game. Yeah, that's incredibly powerful. I love it. I love it. Paul? Uh, just go pick up this book. You won't be disappointed. Um, <laughs> I've read the manuscript probably three or four times because I've been working on it for creating you know, content for Whale Club. Um, read the book and then keep listening to this podcast, right? Cause this yeah. is where we're talking about it every single week. I mean, there's just, we're not without conversations or topics to have on this. It's a, it's an ongoing infinite game, as you say, Dan. So um, yeah, go pick up this book, keep tuning in. We're going to be talking more about this every single week. Yep, exactly. So uh, thank you, Dan, so much for coming on the show. And again, just to reiterate, yeah, everyone, riggingamazon.com. Go buy that book right now. We'll see you all next week.